This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Revenue Growth, a Management Guide for Government Contractors. And the author is Gary A. Dunbar. And Gary joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gary. Good morning, Steve. Good to talk with you. Great to talk with you. This is such a unique field. We uh, sometimes, I guess, don't think a lot about the contractors uh, who have to uh, fulfill all kinds of government needs. And this is a how-to-do-it book, as you say, for government contractors that presents real-world guidance for the management, leadership, procedures, methods, and tools to help achieve consistent long-term revenue growth. Well, there's a lot of competition, I'm sure, for government contracts. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's probably uh, a huge there's number. There's several hundred thousand government contractors in the United States, and most of the contracting that is done is a competitive process. So um, right. it, um, it is head-to-head competition, and um, in most cases there's only one winner and a whole bunch of losers. So, so um, it, it is a competitive field. Well, before we get into some of the details of your book, your How to Do It book for government contractors, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, your successes, and why you decided to write the book. Well, in my career, I've had uh, three major employers, uh, and then I have my own consulting business following that. And the first uh, one, the longest-term employer, Camp Verso McKee, I ended up as the head of a wholly owned subsidiary, and we took that in four years from essentially zero in terms of contracts in the portfolio to over a billion dollars worth of contracts. So that's kind of a growth story. The second job I had, I was brought in as the chief operating officer to do a turnaround, actually required a a reinvention of a company, and turned it was in a losing proposition, doing about $17 million a year. And uh, about three and a half years later, we were at $54 million a year. So that was a nice uh, growth, and it reinvented the company, and it was on a growth curve. And um, the third one was with a large consulting company in Massachusetts, and I was head of a subsidiary uh, that uh, mission was to um, expand and diversify uh, a small amount of business they had with uh, the government and make that grow. And that was a short-term thing because of circumstances beyond my control that happened in the company. But um, in two years, we moved them from a 20% competitive contract win rate to over 65% and a very consistent 65% um, that we were hitting. So at that kind of a win rate, uh, you can grow revenue quite quite handsomely. Um, you're in the 30 40% growth range annually on your revenue when you start winning contracts at that rate. So those experiences uh, is, is what the book is built around uh, on a consulting basis. Then about 12 years ago, I started the consulting company, and um, one of the clients that I worked with uh, had a subsidiary. They had three companies in their their um, firm, and one of the companies had uh, $9 million a year revenue, and that was slowly declining and kind of stalling. And again, it was kind of a reinvention, but this time from the standpoint of a consultant, not not the guy in charge. And um, we got them into a 30 to 40 percent growth rate over uh, three years. So they went um, from nine million to up in the 40 to 50 million dollar a year range, and um, and and are still doing quite well. I've had contracts, um, uh, additional funding put under contracts because of their performance and uh, additional wins. So those kinds of experiences. Um, involved a lot of problem solving, uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of things going wrong that had to be fixed, 
And out of that, I learned my lessons as um, a young guy building a career. And uh, this book is really a compilation of what I saw that worked, what others did that worked, uh, what I learned from CEOs that I worked for and, and problems that I solved on my own. And um, and it's put out and, and offered not as a rigorous step one, step two, step three kind of how to do it book. It's not like how to improve your golf swing, but it, uh, it gives examples and raises questions so that a uh, leadership in a company can solve their own problems and find their own ways to succeed. But it gives them, if you will, a a compass bearing on where they might uh, find an approach or a solution to a problem. Um, So that kind of brings me to how the book got written and what it's all about. And and really much of my motivation was to make uh, this kind of information available. Well, let's get right to the bottom line. If Mm If a CEO follows the guidance in your book, is he guaranteed to see company revenue grow? Nope, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Nothing um, uh, what, what, what he should be able to do, though, is to improve his ability to solve the unique problems that his company faces or her company faces. Um, and, it, and really, every company is going to be a little bit different. They'll have a different market niche. Uh, a different history, a different set of an, uh, expectations and desires. And so trying to write one solution that works for everybody would be a, uh, a hopeless uh, and, and almost ridiculous approach to things. But using examples that have actually happened and the kinds of problems that were faced uh, at least provides one example, and it gives um, a reader something to build on as they create their own solutions for the problems that they face and the challenges they need to meet. And that is the key to you, your book is all these examples. Really. Uh, yes, absolutely. E- examples uh, all the way through. And so um, they all lead to revenue growth, and that's your successes of uh, showing did, did you show any that where you didn't reach quite what the goal was? Um, no, I didn't talk about failures. <laughs> Everybody has some, and we could. Right. Um, but we did. We learn from failures, and uh, mostly, it's what you learn and then apply and and see success come that uh, the the book is about. Um, so it it but it does cover it covers everything from from what the leadership job is for uh, the CEO and his leadership team and what they have to do to achieve leadership uh, revenue growth. Uh, Most of the companies I've consulted with that have problems with revenue growth, a good portion of that problem is in the behavior of the leadership. And um, until that is addressed, it's almost impossible to make leadership or make revenue growth happen uh, from the middle or the bottom up. It really has to have a top-down component that is uh, working correctly. And so there's, there's a whole chapter on, uh, on what the CEO's job is and, uh, and what the leadership team has to do to um, create a company that has the capability to uh, grow revenue on a consistent basis. What can a government contractor do in this day and time where budget reduction is happening through, throughout government? How, how do you deal with that to be successful? Well, at, at any point in time that you're a government contractor, whether it's this crisis or a previous crisis, um, there is one thing that uh, you have to do that a lot of CEOs overlook, and perhaps something that could come out of this as a point for a CEO to ponder, um, is you have to realize not only are you in the business of making your widgets or providing your wonderful services, but you also are in the business of being a government contractor. And government buys things for different reasons than business does. Um, if if um, I'm in a product business, uh, I'm going to grow my company by research and development, constantly bringing out new products. And, you know, if you look at Apple uh, or you look at um, a number of other companies, uh, DuPont back, uh, you know, in the last century, 
and others that have been product um, developers, product creators, and they set the pace for the market. Well, that that's one kind of contractor you can be or firm you can be. Another one is uh, where you deliver systems, and examples of that are like a McDonald's. Uh, McDonald's has a system of quality control and um, economic uh, cost reduction that um, drives the company, and, and they will do things to cut pennies out of the cost of producing uh, their goods, and they'll do an amazing amount of training to have consistent quality. Starbucks is another one of those uh, amazing story about Starbucks is I, I was in uh, China and came down off a tour of the uh, Great Wall and there was a Starbucks at the foot of the stairs and I went in and ordered exactly the same drink that I ordered in the United States and it tasted exactly the same. And that kind of quality control only comes by a company that understands it has to have a system and it has to run it. But the government doesn't really focus on buying those two things. More than anything, they focus on buying solutions to problems. So in this time, uh, if you're going to be a successful contractor, your client now has a new problem. Their budget's getting reduced. Their mission, their challenges, uh, the expectations, the answering to Congress, the answering to the administration of the chain, that doesn't change. They still have all of that to do, but now they don't have as much money. So for the contractor, you've got a choice. You can be part of the problem, and you can go into hardball negotiations and fight for every penny uh, in a contract you have or a contract you're trying to win, or you can figure out a strategy to become part of the solution. And if you're part of the solution, then you have to align yourself with your customer and face the problem that your customer has and help them solve it. And you do that through, you know, finding ways to reduce your own costs, but also working with them creatively to understand their objective, the mission they have, what they're, how their feet are being held to the fire and what they have to accomplish and help them find lower cost ways to accomplish those missions and objectives and, and do the cost savings uh, through those methods, but it really requires aligning yourself in a full partnership uh, with your government customer to um, to find ways to make those strategies work. Do you have to have a lot of political pull influence in order to get a government contract? Uh, not at all. As a matter of fact, that can backfire on you because in the federal acquisition regulations, there are... Uh, specific terms that deal with the criminality of using influence to get a contract. And um, using political influence is, is what those uh, rules are based at, especially somebody that thinks if they give campaign donations, they'll somehow win a contract. Um, and the penalties are tough, and, and they can uh, hurt a company. You can be debarred from government contracting. You win a contract uh, one of two ways either being the lowest cost if the procurement is one where low cost is going to win. They call it low cost te technically acceptable. Um, and the other one is providing the best value to the contract. And again, the procurement or the terms, uh, the, the request for proposal to government issues will say whether it is a best value competition or it is a lowest cost technically acceptable competition. And the way that you respond to either one of those is, is quite different. Uh, low cost, clearly, you're going to uh, be looking for the cheapest possible way to meet the requirements of the contract. But on a best value, you're not necessarily looking for the cheapest way to do things. You're looking for a competitive way to do them, but you're looking for a way to do them better than anybody else does them and make the client um, um, more successful in the uh, mission that they have. Um, and then your proposal, a competitive proposal, presents the features that you're bringing to the table that um, uh, will help that client be more successful about what they're trying to do. We've got time for just one more question, Gary. When you okay. are ordered to, in your position in a company, say the CEO told you, okay, just get more business, but I don't want you to change anything. Okay, well, that's a good example of a CEO who doesn't understand revenue growth and, and what, um, 
what the challenge is and what has to be done. There's a leadership problem at the top. Um, nothing impacts a company bigger and, and more uh, dramatically than either revenue either increasing or decreasing. Either one of those create a whole raft of problems and issues that have to be solved. And obviously, you prefer to solve the problems of revenue increasing, but change is inherent in either one of those. Standing pat and not growing is just a way to get old and, and more and more expensive and put yourself out of business. Uh, but, um, you know, with revenue growth, there will be problems. There has to be changes, and you can't do it. Now, that doesn't mean that I haven't been told over and over and over again by CEOs, uh, just just make the company grow, but don't change anything. That comes up all the time. But when it does come up, you know that you've got a fundamental problem with that company and with that CEO, and you got to figure out how to get across that bridge. Um, and either you can bring the CEO with you, or in some cases, I've gone back uh, to the owner of a company, and um, and we've had conversations about the strategy and how to grow a particular segment, and uh, that's required the uh, giving that uh, current leader of the company an opportunity to explore new avenues in a different venue. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. So, because you, you have the leader has to be there. The leader has to be somebody that is willing to take on change and is going to do it in a way that they're looking for the success that is required to grow revenue. Well, it's certain from your background that you are an expert in this field, uh, Gary A. Dunbar, and he is the author now of his book, Revenue Growth, A Management Guide for Government Contractors. Gary, tell us how to get your book. Well, let me, let me just say one thing about that. The book is available on Amazon and at Barnes and & Noble, and it's available electronically and in paper. It is filled with large multi-page illustrations, tables and charts and one thing or another, and it does not uh, read well electronically. Illustrations are just, just too much for the little four-inch wide strip of uh, text you'll get on the electronic version. Paper version is by far the best way to uh, use the book. It's more like a reference book. You won't read it from cover to cover for a surprise ending. It, it's it's a, it's a bunch of things you can go through and pick and choose what's useful to you at the time. But the illustrations are key to being able to understand what the text is all about. And so I would suggest people focus on that if they want the book. Uh, but you can order on Amazon, Revenue Growth by Gary A. Dunbar, or you can go to Barnes & Noble and they may have it in stock, or they'll order it for you. Thank you, Gary, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. 
Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, the meaning connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 Central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Validation Plan, Awakening and Incorporating the Essential Virtues for a Good Life, Leading to Respect, Harmony, and Peace. And the author is James E. Perkle, and James joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, James. Hey, good morning. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, your book, as you say, uh, this education book, spells out the details of the validation program implemented in schools that promotes the important life virtues of respect, cooperation, understanding, appreciation, and compassion. Certainly, virtues that we need throughout society, but what better place to have it, in my point of view, and your point of view, certainly, is to have it in the schools. I agree 100%. I think that's the whole point of why we started the program to begin with. We wanted to have our youngsters begin to be able to be in a situation where they have uh, an opportunity to become more other-oriented, look at the good and true values and qualities and traits in their classmates, and to write those down. And at the end of the week, they prepare their validations by sharing what they've written about each partner and then they exchange their part, exchange their foundations, and the next pair of kids come up. And we do that once a week, every week. Schools that have implemented that, this program have had enormous results and positive impacts on the kids and the teachers and the school personnel. And I could go on and on sure. and on. So well, you need to, <laughs> yeah, we need to, we'll definitely talk that. about these details. But first of all, why don't you give us a little background on yourself and why you decided to write the book? Okay. Well, I've been a lifelong educator. I started off um, after I graduated from the University of Virginia, wound up teaching English in Deeper News, Virginia. From then on, decided to pursue language and listening and speech communication and went to Bradley University and got a degree in speech communication there. Started teaching at Western University for three years and then my father-in-law uh, said, why don't you and your wife decide to go overseas and work in the DOD overseas school system? And we applied and we got accepted. And when we first started there, we start, we first started off in Stuttgart, Germany, and then I was assigned to be a principal teacher at one of the smaller schools in Holland. And when I first started doing that, it was my first time of teaching four, fifth, sixth grade kids all together. My wife taught first, second, and third grade. And what we learned is that those kids would come in from recess bickering nasty to one another, mean-spirited, and we just sat down and talked about how in the world can we counteract this. So when we first learned about the validation program from a couple of colleagues that were in Germany, we decided to implement it, and since then it's grown by far from the time we first started. And it's had those positive results that we wanted to see, and that is kids who become less narcissistic, they become less self-centered, they become more other-oriented as far as um, being respectful, understanding, appreciating, and being compassionate towards one another. And of course, I can go on and on and on, but that's kind of how it got started. It's been going now for several years all across the United States and in Europe, so it's kind of nice to see that I finally had time to sit down and write a book. So it took me the last two years to get it all together. And I just want to get the word out there, period. Because as you mentioned, you know, there are too many atrocities, too many horrors, too many things that are going on that we're fed up with the incivility and the negativity and the insensitiveness and lack of kindness toward others and any of the other horrors that are occurring in society on a daily basis. And if we can just begin to turn kids around from the very beginning and have them begin to appreciate and value each other and become members of the community where they feel that, that they belong and that they're engaged and, and the other kids are the same kind of kids that they all wind up being and that is they begin to develop positive relationships and respectful one another. 
Well, of course, we know in a lot of homes, this kind of teaching isn't happening. Oh, precisely. You know, it's interesting because, you know, parents, uh, unless they have a good, strong foundation in their philosophy and their faith and whatever it is that bring out the virtues of people, a lot of kids don't have that chance. And even we found that there are some parents who actually incorporate the validation program into their own families. I've had stories about that I could share. And same thing about, I've got samples in the book of one teacher who wrote a validation about her husband, and I've got a sample in the book about a father who wrote a validation to his daughter. It's just amazing how widespread the impact can become. Well, we all know about bullying in the schools. It seems to be growing, and that is a big concern which you address in your book. Right, that's true. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, it's like an antithesis to bullying. If you simply turn the whole framework around where, wait a minute here, we do not accept there is no uh, tolerance for being cruel, mean, spirited, etc. to to one another. That's not allowed. So this is what we're looking for, and this is what we're all about. It does turn bullying around totally, and it is, a, is one of those effective programs. Even though it's not labeled as a bullying program, it automatically takes care of bullying. And you deal with some very, very obvious uh, harsh harsh issues of today's culture because we have shooting, suicides, violence, uh, you know, it, it's beyond, of course, the words are, you know, we're negative and we're cynical with each other, but we also have that issue, and you're trying to deal with those as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's the dominance of a lot of other things, too. Like, you know, a lot of loners in our schools, and every teacher has had at some point in his or her career a loner in a classroom. And those kids who are left alone and begin to get, become become more involved in themselves and focus on themselves and they don't have any real connections with other people, no relationships with other people. And to be um, pretty obvious, you can know what happens to kids like that. They become kids who get involved in gangs, they become hostile, they become violent. Some, I hate to say it, become kids who want to go into school and shoot other kids. And, and those are the kind of things that that's indeed troublesome. And if we can just reach some of those kids, period, and turn them around, that'd make a big difference. Now, what about competition in schools? Well, sometimes, you know, competition is one of those things where if we could define there being such a thing as healthy competition, and there can be. Good coaches can do that kind of a approach with kids, but oftentimes competition puts kids in a situation where they're competing against each other. And when that becomes highly focused, if that becomes a critical part of a school, and more more critical than the development of kids' positive character, then that can be a troublesome issue. And it's just one one of the possible issues that uh, that is, runs against the whole notion of what we're trying to help kids become. Well, you deal with a lot of issues and concerns. You deal with uh, the role of leadership. You you deal with, yep. you know, important, extremely important principles like listening, empathy. Uh, you, right. you have something here, though, it's called the praise paradox. Now, what is that about? Well, sometimes, you know, if you define whatever um, kids are saying and writing, and their validations, you could say, oh, you're just praising them. Well, praising oftentimes takes on the connotation that uh, the real meaning of praise is I'm, you do what I want you to do, and because you do what I want you to do, then I'll praise you for that. But that's not what validation is about at all. We're only about focusing on the good qualities of kids and the, the, virtue, the virtues that they have. And instead of saying praising, no, we want to say we're going to acknowledge we're going to recognize the good and true things about you, but that's not praise. We're not doing it. So you will like me if you do, if you say these, I mean, if, I, if you do what I call you as being this kind of caring person. So 
that's the difference. It's using the words acknowledgement and recognizing rather than praising. I just want to be sure that that's what's the focus, not praise. The first part of the book focuses on why implement the validation program. And the second part of the book is the validation program implementation plan. So you really lay it out. It's a, you know kind of the how-to. Well, all we learned over the years after doing this so many times, and, and the more you do something, the more uh, you can improve upon it and build upon it. And because of the number of years we've been doing it, what we've run into, or here are the, some complications you may encounter when you start doing the program. Here's what you have to keep up with as far as keeping a record of the kids who validate each other each week. Here are some of the pitfalls you want to be sure to avoid, and simple pitfalls like, well, some kids get in their heads, oh, no, this person I'm being assigned to, I just don't like him or her. We have to go through this list of pitfalls with youngsters, just informing them about it in the classroom, being sure they don't fall into one of those pitfalls. All of this implementation plan is there to help the teachers move through it and grab onto it and become much more knowledgeable and informed about the various issues of the program. And we've learned a lot of those, and by sharing those with teachers in advance, they can bingo, just read the book, and follow what's in the book, and they'll be ten times more successful than they would be if they just started out with the program, as it sounds so simple and implementing, and it is a simple program. But uh, the good thing is that the other things we've learned will help them build upon the program and make it even better. What are validation partners? Well, let's suppose you and I or um, any two people in the classroom every week, the teacher will um, assign us a partner in that, in that classroom. And the teacher's always involved. Too. The teacher becomes one of the validating partners. So the kids have a partner. And the teacher has a partner at the end of the week on Friday. Typically, that's when we found it's the most effective. Kids come together, get up front of the class, read the validation aloud to each other, and then they exchange their validations, and they either shake hands or pat each other on the back, although they don't have to do any of that. They just do whatever they find comes natural. They go back to their seat, and the next pair comes up until everybody validates each other. And what we found, even from the very beginning, what amazed me is that you know, we're always trying to get kids to listen, one of the language art skills. Listen and listen thoroughly and listen completely. So while they're reading and writing and speaking, they're also listening. And the kids, we learned when we'd watch them in the classroom, listening to their partners being validated, they listen more closely than they would listen to me as a teacher sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Why all the different appendices at the end of the book? Well, they're all there to give teachers further uh, information and further explorations. There are some uh, some various websites that they can go to and look for other kinds of things that are affiliated with this program. Uh, not only just the statistics that are out there about the actual harms we're going on in society, but the other appendixes are there to help other teachers who read the book. For example, you'll find in the book several teachers and several students who have written validations and their comments about how effective and impacting the program is. And if, when you read those, I mean, if I were a person reading a book for the first time, if I read some of the comments that the teachers have made and the principals have made, and I would say, wow, if this is what these folks are saying and it's truly professionally articulated, I would want to do that program immediately. So appendixes like that just continue to give and bolster the support for the teachers. And you have found another result, uh, literally an enhancement and an enrichment of language art skills. Right, right. And it's because the kids, you know, for the first time, here's what happens to them. Whenever you, we've learned in learning theories and education that whenever kids are directly involved in whatever it is they're doing, and when they own the responsibility for it, and when they're totally engaged in the process, their skills at reading, writing, 
just totally parsing and understanding words and looking for the right virtues and trying to grab onto vocabulary they never even heard of before. All that really does boost them, and they become much more articulate. And so we first started describing it years ago as a language arts program, and it is in that particular sense. But it's also a program that has many, many more benefits from it in terms of virtues and uh, values of life and what it is to be a good human being. We've been listening to James E. Perkle. He is the author of his book, The Validation Plan, Awakening and Incorporating the Essential Virtues for a Good Life, Leading to Respect, Harmony, and Peace. James, tell us how to get your book. Well, you can get it by various means. I mean, it's already on Amazon.com. It's on BarnesandNobles.com websites. You can get it through uh, the publishing company called iUniverse, I little i, big U, all in word, iUniverse. There's a website now that's uh, been developed by the publisher, and the website will give further information and insight. And there's also they created a fan Facebook page for the publication program, which I found interesting. But you know, that's a variety of ways they can access it. And my hope is that, boy, if we can just get some folks to listen and think about this program and pick up the book and read it, I think they would then begin to say, wow, this is a definitive way of getting where we want to be with kids. Thank you so much, James, for being with us oh, on iUniverse Radio. Well, thanks a million. I really appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Ashes of Deception, and the author is Dr. Willoughby S. Hundley, and Dr. Hundley joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, doctor. Hello. Great to have you with us to talk about this mystery. It's got a lot of twists and turns, and uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this kind of a plot. Uh, You say this. A local medical examiner teams with county detectives to piece together clues from suspicious deaths that uncover a web of crimes involving drugs, gambling, adultery, arson, and murder. I think you covered everything. <laughs> you covered everything in, that, in this story. Uh, so before we get into the details about the characters and the plot, uh, Doctor, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and why you wrote the book. Uh, I'm... A family physician. I, in 
rural Virginia. Uh, I wrote the book because it's it's based on some of the experiences that I encountered as a uh, local medical examiner. Uh, I've done this for about 26 years, and some of the death deaths were interesting and 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 worthy of stating, so people could look at. Uh, of course, this is a fiction, and the situations are completely changed. Uh, but this is my hometown uh, that I write about, and it's something that's very interesting to me. So is Dr. Obi Hardy the main character? He's kind of based on you? Yes, it's, it's based on me. Based on you and your experiences. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about Dr. Hardy. Well, Dr. Hardy, again, is a small-town family physician. In, in Virginia, the medical examiner system uses uh, local or community doctors for medical examiner cases that are outside of the cities. Uh, they'll contact the local medical examiners when they're local deaf to visit the scenes and collect evidence and and help with the paperwork and the investigation. Is it uh, is it difficult in a rural area to investigate deaths? I mean, is there is there problems there? Uh, yes, there there problems uh, somewhat different than the the uh, urban high tech uh, investigations that's usually portrayed in movies and TV. Uh, we have a lot of times no cell phone service, uh, none of the high tech equipment, and it's often a delay in getting the evidence processed and, and back so it can be put together sometimes a month. So Dr. Hardy is called out to a uh, scene where there's a couple dead bodies. Is, is that right? Uh, yes, that's the initial um, initial scene in the book. And uh, he meets up there with, uh, I guess somebody you know pretty well, uh, Detective Bruce Duffer. Uh, right. They, Dr. Hardy and Doctor and uh, Bruce Duffer, have worked together and known each other. And I think uh, Bruce Duffer has even been a patient of Dr. Hardy's at one time in his practice. So they're they're familiar with each other. So, two deaths, what is the difference in these two deaths? Uh, what gets, what starts to happen after they start to uh, do some forensic work there and do a little, uh, you know, they're working at the crime scene? Well, this book has uh, 17 medical examiner cases interspersed in it. And as life itself is, you don't know which medical cases, which medical examiner cases are related to any of the crime or the story plot. So there, you don't know during the, when the cases come up, which ones are relevant to the story or not. Uh, that in some ways is, I guess, a little confusing, but it's, it's a presentation of real life, how it's thrown at, uh, Bruce Duffer and Dr. Hardy. You see this case, and you see another case, and then you see another case. Uh, is there any relation or not? Yeah. Uh, sometimes there appears to be, and sometimes there doesn't appear to be. So it really keeps the reader guessing. Uh, right, but that's, it's a portrayal of how it really is. Hmm. It's not always a one-hour show where you have two cases and... You focus on those cases. Uh, this is life. You have a case, and then you go back to the office and see some patients, and then life goes on. Right. And another another case opens up, and you've got some another uh, death that you have to deal with. So, give us some of the the different scenarios here. As I'm looking through those, they're all they're, like you say, they're all uh, very unique and different. So, what are some of the different things that uh, Dr. Hardy, you know, situations he runs into. One of the things I think about a lot when I think of the book is the finding of a child's body in an outhouse toilet. Uh, this seems to be quite disturbing. Uh, Detective 
Bruce Duffer, he, he manages to keep a level head and completes his investigation in a very methodical manner, although this is a somewhat gruesome death scene. And Dr. Hardy uh, uses his medical training to give a, a different view in uh, the, I guess, medical highlight of the cases. And this complements the, the detective work. And one of his patients, he finds one of his patients dead at home. Yes. Uh, that particular character that he finds dead in, in the book was a patient of his and was one of the more interesting characters. Uh, that was Josh Nichols. Uh, he had a, a very unusual lifestyle. He was a, a outdoorsman. Uh, he was very self-sufficient, lived alone, uh, eccentric. And it, as, as it often is in the country, you don't know people have been, have died sometimes for days and sometimes even weeks before you find them. And as they move from one death scene to another, as you write, uh, they start to see uh, something, I guess they're starting to understand they're exposing a web of corruption that is dealing with some local cocaine dealer. Yes, yes, the, some drug abuse on the toxicology uh, tends to keep coming up. Uh, and this is, of course, rampant across the United States, and it is not unheard of, even in the rural communities. But it's sometimes not blatantly obvious. Is this cocaine dealer, Skeeter Richard, is he uh, on the list of, by the police that he's, you know, someone they'd like to nab? Not to give away a lot of the details, but he is under investigation, yes. And then there's this uh, local contractor... Dale Gregory, what kind of role does he play in the story, along with his wife? Um, I like to think of him kind of as an innocent bystander. Uh, a lot of things happened around him and to him, and he sort of is resourceful and does the most with what he can. I think his story is, is one of the main stories that stimulated the writing of the book and gave me ideas to write this. I had heard different versions from different relatives of a similar type uh, situation. So it was put together as a way it might have been or the way it might have happened in this book. So he's got real problems with his wife. Yes. She's, she, um, I, I guess that's no secret. She's a narcissistic and an adulteress, and they have substantial marital problems so this this whole story it's uh i guess they're both pr propelled into this uh dangerous investigation and, and of course the outcome uh in a, any any kind of a great mystery the outcome no one anticipates that's true and some elements of the entire story don't are, aren't completely answered uh the reader knows more than actual Detective Duffer and Dr. Hardy because they're fed information that they don't have. So the reader knows more. They can make some assumptions, and they may actually can, in their mind, solve some of these cases that weren't solved on paper. And there's a theme about cockfighting throughout the story? Yeah, that was a local uh, historical event uh, related to... Uh, a ring of local cockfighting. It it tied in to the story. I, I wanted to add some elements of local history that gave it some realism, but as I started doing it, there was actually some realism that tied in with the storyline, so it added more realism than I even thought. And you, of course, uh, with the this whole drug ring, cocaine ring, uh, there's even ties to the Mexican mafia. Uh, yes, and that also is one of the things that wasn't that obvious and is sort of seen by the reader more so than the investigators. This book also... I guess points out uh, your profession, this rural medical examiner of course, very valuable in 
interpreting evidence in, in this kind of a small community? Uh, yes, and again, it's a, a dramatization of, of what really happens. So there's, there may not be many rural medical examiners as good as Dr. Hardy looks in the book. <laughs> well, that's what's great about uh, writing fiction. You know, you can make a person as big or as uh, troubled as you would like. Well, but also he's not greater than life. He's believable. Oh, very good. Yes, that's very important. And so, Dr. Obi Hardy, is there going to be any more in, uh, you know, a sequel or a series about him? At the end of the book, the first chapter of the upcoming book is, is put in there that, that still uses Dr. Uh, Obi Hardy and in, in, uh, Detective Duffer. They're continued. They're working a, a new case in the first chapter that's included in that. Uh, that book may be completed by the end of this year, but more likely won't be released until March of 2014. Any other closing thoughts, Dr. Hundley? No, I think everyone has curiosity about dying. Uh, obituaries are kind of bland and uninformative. Uh, this gives readers the behind-the-scenes views and mysterious death. I, I think it's a, a topic that's interested, interesting to a wide range of people. Dr. Hunley, the author of Ashes of Deception, Willoughby S. Hundley. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, it's available uh, online from retailers such as Barnes & Noble, Amazon. It's available from the publisher which is iUniverse. It's the letter I with universe after it. Uh, I haven't seen it a lot in any stores, although it is in our uh, local hospital gift shop in South Hill. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. And thank you so much, too, for having me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.